welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. This is the only place to be every Tuesday for the very best blues news and analysis from The Athletic's team of Chelsea experts. Available from all good podcast providers, remember to subscribe so you never miss a show. And if you're feeling particularly generous, why not leave us a review too? On today's show, we'll discuss the latest on the Premier League's project restart, including Frank Lampard's concerns. I'll be putting your questions to our esteemed panel. And four years on from the infamous Battle of the Bridge, we'll rewind to the day Chelsea won the league for Leicester. All that to come on this episode of Straight Out of Cobham. Yes, welcome in slash welcome back one and all. Matt Davis-Adams here. Hope you're feeling well and not missing the football too much. I'm here, brackets virtually, close brackets, with my three athletic associates once again. Joining me on the line are Dominic Fifield. Hey, how you doing? Good. Liam Toomey. Hello. And Simon Johnson. Hello. Simon's still winning the Hello Award pretty comfortably. Um, Liam, before we get into the latest news, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your latest piece for The Athletic. Yeah, so I had a a bit of a deep dive um, into the advanced numbers for Chelsea's last two title-winning seasons. The headline of the piece was was watch Chelsea's best title-winning team, but I couldn't really compare properly 04, 05, 05, 06 and 09, 010 because we just don't have the same level of um, metrics, basically performance metrics, as we do for the last few years because that's when Opta and other stats companies have really ramped things up. So I compared Conte and, and Mourinho's title wins and there were some pretty interesting results um i came down at the end of about 2000 words fairly firmly in the camp that conte's title was was slightly better backed up by the numbers but also because of the kind of context of the achievement as well but there there were some really interesting things about it and particularly comparing the roles of individual players across those teams so which one was the the better Diego Costa season and when was Cesc Fabregas more effective as an impact sub under Conte or as a starter under Mourinho so there there were lots of interesting things like that and I I think there was um, a lot to, to get people thinking in there. Well, if you agree or disagree with uh, Liam's decision, you can read the article in full and for free by taking advantage of our 90-day free trial today. Just visit theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod. That's theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod. Right, let's get started then, as the government said to the Premier League. The first item on our agenda today is Project Restart, the not-that-catchy title the Premier League have come up with as they look to defy the odds and some would say medical science by restarting the 2019-20 season, possibly as early as next month. The league say they'll only return to training and playing with government guidance. The government seem keen to get things going again ASAP, but there's understandable hesitancy from some clubs and players. There's a very detailed piece on The Athletic now which delves into what happened at the virtual meeting, so do check that out if you haven't already. Chelsea, of course, were represented at Friday's meeting. Simon, what, what's the feeling amongst the hierarchy with uh, regards to the ethics and the, and the feasibility of starting so soon? Well, I think Chelsea, uh, as a club, like all Premier League clubs, um, well, perhaps not all, there seems to be a lot of, um, still a lot of uh, toing and froing between the Premier League and clubs themselves. But I think Chelsea uh, are hoping to get the season restarted as long as it has the um, government say so. I think Frank Lampard is coming at it from a different point of view um, which I find was quite interesting the comments that he had to say at the weekend um, highlighting the fact that not only 
you're kind of suggesting that coaches and players haven't been consulted as much as he thought they should be, um, but is very wary about football being given preferential treatment ahead of the NHS, um, which I think is the point that has been missing from a lot of these discussions just generally of the importance of the Premier League restarting. It's already well that clubs want football replayed. We we all want to see football again. It's it's what uh, whether you're you work in it professionally or just a football fan, it's what we all love. But I think unless it can be done safely, uh, it'd be foolish for us to rush into anything too soon. Dom, this piece that uh, Steve Parrish, the Crystal Palace chairman, wrote for the Sunday Times this weekend is something that you've been reflecting on for The Athletic. Uh, he, he making the point that caring about our clubs and the football industry and caring about the situation doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. It's a, it's a well-thought-out argument. Do you think it's going to carry much sway? It will with certain clubs. The Premier League sounds as if it's divided on this. Um the numbers, I'm not quite sure. We're, we're hearing conflicting details on the on the numbers that would would be eager to restart and those that that wouldn't. Everybody's saying they would love to finish the season, which is the politically correct thing to say. Um, but the reality is that um, I, I got the sense that that some chairman left that Zoom or Skype meeting on Friday frustrated that whatever proposal was put forward, a certain block of clubs many of whom are near the bottom of the table, weren't interested in um, really negotiating on it. They were you know, intransigent. They weren't, they weren't going to be moving. Um, and we should really remember all of this, all talk of the Premier League coming back, is there are so many caveats there that they're all saying they will only do this when the government says it's the right time to, to do it and, and the government will be taking medical advice on... So it's not as if it's not as if Premier League football is going to suddenly just start up in defiance of all social distancing measures. It's this is there are so many things and so many layers to this that have to be completed, have to be satisfied before before Premier League football can get anywhere close to to starting up again. But the, the reality is, and as Steve Parrish made, I thought, yeah, very persuasively, the, his argument laid out in the Sunday Times and and on Palace's website. That football and the Premier League does need to get going again because these are businesses essentially. You know, we we all have a romantic att- attachment to our clubs, and there is a romance involved in it all. But they're businesses that need to be running in the same way that a, a business in the high street that's currently boarded up needs to get back open again and getting punters through the door um, and selling produce or whatever it does to get the whole economy moving again. And the alternative. And just sort of constantly procrastinating and putting stuff back and saying, oh, no, we'll address this in August and September is potentially calamitous for English football, whether that be the top clubs or those at the foot, obviously more pertinently for those at the foot. Uh, Liam, I'm just wondering about the Chelsea players perspective. As we record today on Monday, we're seeing reports that those who've been based abroad, who've flown back to their home countries, have been called back by the club. We heard the quotes from Sergio Aguero expressing his worry about playing again. Is that likely to be shared by by some of the Chelsea players? And 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 is there is their hand in that case weakened by the fact that they haven't taken a wage cut or deferral? You know, if the club says you've got to come back and play, then then they kind of have to do that. Well, I think the first thing to say is it's unlikely that the Chelsea players will be 
thinking in in one voice about this um just as they as they weren't necessarily when the talks about wage cuts were were happening you know simon reported at the time that no one player wanted to be the one to create an issue but some of them did have questions and some of them did have concerns so i think when it comes to the question of restarting the concerns that you've heard certain players like sergio aguero voice uh about the dangers to their own health and the health of people they know transcend club divides there, there will be players at every single club thinking these things um as to whether their position is weakened by not having taken a pay cut i'm i'm not sure about that um i think they're they're perfectly valid concerns but uh, you know there's still the possibility of a wage cut or deferral down the line and i think just because there hasn't been an agreement yet doesn't mean there won't be and i think maybe there's a there's a there's a feeling of wait and see among the players about how this will all pan out and if it gets to a stage where there is a a heavy push um to get football restarted again then i think players will make sure that they have to be an active part of that conversation and and they'll they'll probably have to accept at that stage that wage cuts deferrals might have to be back on the table again if they they create a problem but for now there's so much uncertainty around the situation that I don't see necessarily too much of a um, a contradiction there. Yeah, what I would uh, what I would just add on to what what Liam's just said is, um, of course, a couple of Chelsea players have been interviewed in recent weeks, and William was one that that certainly spoke about his concerns about passing it on to his family. Of course, he's one of the players that come from back from overseas and, and arrived back in the country. And Tony Rudiger last week was talking to German television, and I'll just sort of reread one of the one of the quotes that he gave, which which, which I think is probably something that is a, a sentiment felt by many players, not not just at Chelsea but across the league. Um, he says, "If we continue to play and there is a danger, and we ignore that while people are dying somewhere in the world, I don't know if that would sit right on my conscience." Um, he went on to say, if everything fits and it comes from those in charge that it's okay, there's no danger, then we can start. But if there is a danger that it will start again and more people will get infected, in brackets, we can start again. So I, I think from a player's point of view, there's very much, um, and of course you have to generalise given that I'm only quoting two players here, but I think there is a feeling that yes, if, there, if there's sort of certain assurances that can be given then they're going to be happy to play. But I, I think it would be very naive to think that players aren't thinking right now, or hang on a minute, if the public is still at risk, why should we be running around a football pitch um, where contact is obviously, um, social distancing can't be enforced and it's going to be a constant concern on their mind. Um, but in saying that, Chelsea are preparing for it. As we've already said, that they've called back their overseas players. And I think May the 18th is the, is the date in their like with many clubs sort of ring-fenced on their calendar in terms of a possible return to training. But I think a lot of what football will have to wait for is, of course, the government's meeting themselves on, on Thursday when they decide what uh, what they're going to do regarding the next step in the lockdown measures and whether any of those are relaxed. But But it is right and proper that the Premier League and its clubs should be preparing for the prospect of coming back. I mean, I think that's what these talks are all about. They're not really going into the minutiae. And, and in fact, they're saying that they will have to be talking to the LMA. They'll be have to talk to the PFA um, in the next stage of the of, of the return, if you like. 
Um, so maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves because there are meetings taking place and there's a bit of a, a news vacuum out there. But the, the reality is it's it's good sense, good business sense um, for for them to be planning to, to return as businesses, just in as, as it is for any business in this country to, to, to plan to, to reopen again in the, in the weeks and months ahead. Well, as Simon says, we might well learn more about this on Thursday when the Prime Minister reveals his lockdown exit plan. One thing we can say for certain is that there'll be no more youth football played in the 2019-20 season. We'll discuss why that is and what the ramifications are next. So on Friday of last week, the EFL released a statement which said the EFL has today confirmed that the Academy Games programme for the 2019-20 season has been terminated with immediate effect. For their part, the Premier League added... This decision, which is independent of any discussions regarding the resumption of the 2019-20 campaign for first-team football, has been taken to give academy staff and their players clarity at this challenging time. So that means no more action for the young Chelsea sides from under-9s to under-23s. How the final league standings will be decided will be announced at a later date. Uh, In terms of ramifications for Chelsea then, Liam, pretty much inevitable that this decision would be made, but it it won't stop it from being disappointing for the academy sides, particularly the under-18s and the under-23s. Under-18s in the semis of the Youth Cup and the under-23s, top of PL2 and unbeaten. So so players and coaches obviously disappointed they're not going to be able to uh, complete what could have been pretty glorious seasons for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is traditionally winning time, isn't it, for Chelsea's academy? So it, it, it's going to be a blow, but I, I'm sure it's one that they very much anticipated. I mean, unfortunately, as much as losing these academy games is a problem in terms of development for, for these youngsters, um, there isn't the same sort of financial pressure to get academy football up and running again. There aren't multi-billion pound TV contracts driving all of this. So it, it was kind of inevitable that... Um, that it that it would be cut short and it's and it's a shame particularly for for players who might not be eligible age-wise for the FA Youth Cup next year you know they they lose potentially their their last chance to win the competition and and they had a pretty pretty damn good one um but but it is it, it is what it is and 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 players i think will will be continuing to train they'll be continuing to get guidance from the development coaches remotely um uh, until it's safe to return to Cobham and and uh, and I'm sure that the developmental work will be going on as much as it can, but there has to be a recognition of the fact that th- this is an unprecedented situation and there will be an unprecedented cost for academy football. Simon, I I'm, I'm appreciate I'm asking you to make an educated guess here, but but I assume... <laughs> Some of the players in, <laughs> I assume some of the players in, in the under twenty three, maybe even in the the under eighteen squad, that they're going to be kind of kept on standby, aren't they? I mean, I know they can't exactly fly across the other side of the world for a holiday, but but if and when the Premier League does resume, some of these players might be needed if if some of the first team squad either don't want to take part or find themselves in quarantine. Yeah, yeah, there's always that possibility, and I'm sure the club themselves will want. You know, the only other option is they can't exactly tell them to go off and uh, and in sort of hang around for months waiting for competitive action. So they've got to give them some some kind of focus. I mean, unfortunately for them, um, this this uh, this break in play has sort of given um, it, Chelsea's injury list uh, a chance to resolve itself. Um, 
So it's going to be very difficult for players unless, like as you rightly say, um, players decide not to not to play or there's this they, they perhaps get the illness or quarantine, etc. Um, but there's a very full possibility that Frank Lampard will have a fit first team squad for the first time uh, since he took over, which of course will will inevitably reduce any chances for the youngsters to play. But but yeah, certainly Chelsea will be passing that message on as they are with. With the loanees, of course, who who are also at this moment not getting the chance to to kick a ball with their respective clubs, but from what I'm hearing, um, they're in regular contact with them, even though uh, there's no football for them to talk about and, and go through. Um, they're they're making it very clear that they must um, sort of work on things, whether it be their training regime or sort of look at the way they um, they should be sort of learning from the the games they played in. Don, one of the things that we, we've debated in, in recent weeks is, is the issue of players out of contract uh, during the summer. I guess that's an issue for youth players as well, isn't it? Because there can't be as much time and consideration being being spent on that kind of thing by clubs, but by scouts and, and by people lining up transfers too. Is there a danger that some young players might fall through the cracks because of this? Yeah, it's a possibility, I would imagine. I mean, when when the Premier League or the Football Association, whoever, or the Football League determine how we're going to cope with uh, the, the contractual situation they will have to address that issue of, of youth contracts expiring um, and as you say players yeah just dis- disappearing off the scene really um, I mean FIFA's FIFA's guidelines are that, that contracts can all be extended and, and they will be you know if, if 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 players are going to be useful going to be assets in, in terms of the short term but maybe not in the long term then I, I guess even clubs like Chelsea might look to to offer extensions of one or two months to to players, but th- th- these these aren't sort of normal situations. They're, they're not normal, uh, almost contractual documents. Really, that it's all going to be improvised and it's all going to be determined by how the leagues react to this situation. Um, it's it's all up in the air. But but yeah, I mean, in the same way that that you know, kids at school, you know, who who might be leaving one school to go to another one in September might be deprived of the last term of their of their of their time at one school it'll be the same with 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 youth team players as well i mean it's it's definitely a danger all right that's enough misery for today we'll get on to the battle of the bridge shortly but we've had a, a couple of questions from listeners remember you can tweet me at matt davis adams anytime you like if you have something you'd like to put to the panel and that's what grant james did uh, he wants to know, I'm interested in this because it's something that's been featured on The Athletic recently, what is the future looking like for Ethan Ampadu? Liam, if we kind of take the current situation out of it as much as that is feasible to do, is it is it fair to say that, that maybe Billy Gilmore's impact before the pause has affected Ampadu or is the fact that, it, that his loan in Germany hasn't gone so well meant, meant that he's back a couple of steps or, or is he where he was before? I think primarily it's the fact that he's played so so little football in Germany. Um, even though he insists that he he has developed in other ways under Julian Nagelsmann, you know he admitted in the interview that he did with with Michael Walker that uh, he he needed to have played more really, and that and that it hadn't gone to plan. I think there's an element of maybe Billy Gilmore being also the the type of defensive midfielder that Lampard is looking to use you know the way Chelsea are playing the Jorginho mold of deep lying playmaker I think 
Billy Gilmore maybe fits that archetype a little bit easier than Ampadu does. The advantage that Ampadu has, obviously, is that he can also play as a centre-back. And I actually think he's best suited to being a centre-back uh, in a top team that has the ball a lot. But there's a lot of competition there in, in, in the Chelsea squad as well. And so it's, it's not easy necessarily to see him having a place in the first team squad next year, um, particularly if... Chelsea still go through with the plans they had prior to this shutdown to to strengthen fairly significantly in the next transfer window. Uh, so I think probably the the best option for him is a, a loan, a more productive loan, maybe elsewhere in the Premier League this time, where he can he can regain some of that momentum that he lost and 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 start reminding everyone of what an incredible talent he is because you know when he made that breakthrough under Antonio Conte everyone at Chelsea was was raving about him and and the consensus really was it's when rather than if he becomes a a big player at Stamford Bridge. Don with Liam saying about a Premier League loan there the first club that that sprung to mind for me were Crystal Palace obviously worked out well for Ruben Loftus-Cheek a couple of seasons ago. Do you you think that that would be beneficial to him, you know, with those famous Roy Hodgson training sessions where you get drilled and drilled and drilled because you see him benefiting from that? Look, he might benefit from that, definitely. And I'm not not sure he'd get that many games there. I mean, if if he's coming as a centre-half, Palace have already got five centre-halves and all senior players who who don't look as if they're going to be moving on anytime soon. And and, and in midfield, even, Palace are, are very well stocked. I mean, I, I agree with Liam. A loan move next next season would would suit him. He's only nineteen. We shouldn't we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. He's he, there's there's plenty of time left for him to make his mark at, at Chelsea, uh, but he does need a, a season of thirty plus games in in a senior squad. Um, and if that isn't in the Premier League um, next season, then certainly in the, the top end of the Championship w- would work. Um, I wonder whether Swansea City might become an option again, given Chelsea's close links with them, um, potentially in the future. But but you know it's all pie in the sky again. But he's a kid with a massive massive future ahead of him, and I don't think Chelsea will be well, Chelsea. Chelsea will have the right strategy for him to get to get the best out of him and continue his development. Uh, Simon, we've also had a question from the Rex. Uh, they want to know what's the news on Koulibaly and is Onana or Pope the goalkeeping priority? That second part interests me particularly because some quotes from Kepa came out over the weekend saying basically he believes he's got the faith of Frank Lampard still. Yeah, I mean, I think the the problem with the transfer window is that inevitably things have changed in terms of. I mean, I don't think Chelsea can make too many concrete decisions until everyone knows uh, what's going on with the resumption of football, etc., etc. Um, but Chelsea have taken a financial hit like everybody else. Um, so I think that the big transfer spend that was that was planned uh, may have been altered a little bit. And I think that's why perhaps you are sort of reading quotes from Kepa because that's a, it's a big ask uh, for Chelsea to sell a keeper that, of course, they don't want to make a massive loss on, which they, they inevitably would do if they sell him right now. Um, but yeah, they certainly were looking at potential alternatives, um, as you would do. It's, it's quite normal. But as for Koulibaly, I mean, he's been linked. Chelsea been interested in him and sort of certainly noises around him for a number of years. But Napoli are notoriously hard to negotiate with. De Laurentiis has, has been a very difficult 
person to agree fees for and that's why Chelsea was scared off Koulibaly before. I can't see Koulibaly being a Chelsea player because I think the fee that Napoli would be asking for would be too much. Although I wouldn't rule out another centre-half coming in at Chelsea because that was certainly a weakness uh, this season and certainly an area where Frank Lampard was concerned with. Good stuff. Right, finally today, we are going to take a look back on a memorable night in 2016. So, Cesc Fabregas has been trolling Spurs on Twitter again and almost four years to the day since a Chelsea team with absolutely nothing to play for decided to show up and destroy their rivals' faint hopes of a first title win in over half a century. It only seems right that we pay homage to it today. Liam, you were at Stamford Bridge that night. How would you surmise the season for Chelsea up to that point? Well, an, an absolute catastrophe, you <laughs> know, um, a disastrous unraveling under Jose Mourinho, um, and then a kind of fading into mediocrity under Gus Hiddink. Uh, Simon would be <laughs> well placed to to talk about that. He had a few run-ins with Gus during his otherwise uneventful second caretaker stint, but um, Chelsea's season had had petered out. Um, in February, really, after they went out of the FA Cup to Everton at Goodison Park. And and there was nothing for them to play for for weeks until the prospect of this Tottenham game uh, loomed into view with, with, with Tottenham trying to chase down Leicester against the full might of public opinion, which was firmly, firmly in favour of the Leicester fairy tale. Um, and suddenly you could feel the intensity growing at Chelsea um, among the fans. I remember, I can't, I can't remember which game Chelsea played before that. I think it might have been away at Bournemouth. Yeah, it was, yeah. Where, yeah. where I remember the fans sh- shouting, you better be effing Tottenham. And, and <laughs> I'd never heard anything like that before. Um, and, and then, you know, in the week leading up to the game, you had players like Eden Hazard talking about how much the game meant to them. Uh, which w- it was also surreal given where Chelsea were in the table, but but it was it was really illustrative of of the Chelsea Spurs rivalry, um, more so maybe than 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 matches where both sides have had a, a bit more riding on it, um, and and then the game itself panned out in in very much that vein. It, the the amount of atrocious tackles that went in <laughs> on both sides, absolutely crazy. I, I don't know how Mark Clattenburg didn't send someone off. He he seemed to make a decision very early in the game that he wasn't going to send anyone off. And he basically spent 90 plus minutes playing advantage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 13 yellow cards by the time the, the game had finished. Nine of those coming for Spurs players. So they went 2-0 up. Goals from Youngmin Son and Harry Kane. And Chelsea then launched the comeback. Gary Cahill pulls one back before Hazard's goal hands the 5,000 to one shots. Leicester the title. Um, Simon, it, it was a strange thing to, to witness for me. Uh, this is, what, my fourth season probably covering Chelsea at this point, And it had been all glory up to this point. So it was really weird to see see kind of revelling in the suffering of others be, being the primary source of joy. But it was the only scrap of salvation to take from that season, wasn't it? Pretty much. I mean, it summed up the... Um, in a way, it was kind of tables turned because Tottenham have been... Um, sort of in that position of trying to be the party poopers that they, they've they've tried on occasion to to ruin Chelsea's season. I remember, of course, they'll remember fondly 2008, where they not only beat Chelsea in the League Cup 
final, but they also secured a very, what proved to be costly uh, 4-4 draw with Chelsea uh, in what was a very tight, tight, tight race with Manchester United. But but this was very much a, a salvaging some pride, salvaging some kind of bragging rights in this rivalry. Um, Liam mentioned the my my. I didn't have many run-ins with Goose Hitting. I basically had one run-in with Goose Hitting, which was ahead of the game. Um, and it was... Look, Goose Hitting got a very easy ride in press conferences. Everyone knew that he was basically just filling in uh, marching time until the next guy came in to try and repair the damage. And I just sort of realised that we'd got to May and Goose Hitting's home record that season was worse than Jose Mourinho's. And, and yet he'd not really been called up on it. And um, I just sort of uh, phrased it. I thought, well, how can I phrase this without getting him too upset? Um, I, I just sort of said, oh, uh, everyone's talking about the need to to beat Tottenham to stop them from winning the title. But but don't you also feel that you know you need to win a game at home just to just for the ho- for the fans, you know, just to cheer them up a bit? And and let's just say Hiddink took great exception to this question. Um, I then sort of retorted by saying, well, one home win in five months isn't Chelsea standards. And uh, it kind of went, it kind of went from there. <laughs> and uh, It was and like Frost Nixon. It was amazing. <laughs> basically, he chanted at me because uh, my question was during the broadcast section. So he chanted at me during the broadcast section. Then he had a pop at me during the, the daily section when I was actually transcribing quotes and I was suddenly aware that the room was all looking at me and uh, I, t- I put my headphones down and looked up and he went, oh, he's not even listening. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and then even when the press conference finished, um, he walked past me, my chair was at the end of the row and he went, oh, you're talking about my home record, what about my away record? <laughs> so I really got under his skin, which was, which was very bizarre. But anyway, back to the game. So um, it's, it's almost like me and Hiddink, sort of, we, we, we set the tone a little bit. Um, but back to the game, a- another thing that, that, that surprised me about that game is Tottenham, the reaction from Tottenham, a certain section from their fans celebrated... Uh, their performance. Um, there's talk of they would sort of be talking about, oh well, we didn't go without go down without a fight, etc., etc. But actually, it was a complete misrepresentation of what happened um, from my point of view. In that it was the epitome of a team and a manager, because Pochettino as well. I thought his behaviour that night was bizarre. Of a team just losing control. Um, now you have to remember as Tottenham were cruising at 2-0. They were far, by far the better side. And it seemed that Chelsea started to wind them up and they, they just got sucked into a battle which they didn't really need to get involved in. And as Liam rightly pointed out, that it was absolutely mystifying how Tottenham kept delivering players on the pitch. Um, but of course, it ended up being Eden Hazard's sort of saving grace of a season which he would want to forget a phenomenal goal the equaliser not just for his bit of skill but the the combination with Diego Costa in the finish and I think it was voted and given the time of the season it was voted Chelsea's goal of the season it just sort of wiped all the other candidates out of contention and um, for Eden Hazard it was kind of uh, his season was people were saying he downed tools that season which wasn't accurate He he actually just 
struggled with fitness from the very start. And Chelsea only really got to see the best of him right at the end of that season because a few days later he went to Anfield and scored another superb individual goal. But um, for Chelsea, it was 2-2 draw. They could rub their rivals' noses in it, but it really didn't make amends for what was a very disappointing season. Dom, I just wonder, on, on the Hazard thing, how big an impact does this goal have on his Chelsea legacy? Because without it, this season is a total write-off for him. W- would people have forgiven that w- without the goal against Spurs? It's a good question. Uh, I interviewed him the f- beginning of the following season and he, he, he went in detail into the hip injury that had been hampering him all throughout 2015-16. Um, he, def- he defended his... Well, he certainly refuted any suggestions that he had down tools um, and admitted that he'd sent a text message of apology to Jose Mourinho following his dis- his dismissal. Um, you, remember, you remember the situation at Leicester City when he said he couldn't play on and they were not lost a game in, in Mourinho's final match in charge. But it's funny, would it, he, he wouldn't have looked back with any affection at that season, regardless of whether he'd scored that goal or not, I, don't, I wouldn't have thought. But I think it, it was a... That moment, that rather that stirring moment of the equaliser, and and the fact that they could cling to to wrecking Spurs's challenge, it did probably restore some of the faith that the supporters had with with that group of players, who then became integral under Antonio Conte, and, and didn't have a let's remember they didn't have a great start to the next season either. Really, I mean, it was after you know it was only after the Arsenal half-time team talk and the and the the, the change in in tactics that, that Liam got his greatest ever season as, as a supporter of Chelsea. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 look, Hazard won't look back at 2015-16 with any, with any sense of satisfaction at all, regardless of, of, of scoring that goal. The only notable thing that I suppose he might say is that he, he effectively scored the goals that, that won the title in successive seasons because he'd, he'd managed the, the winner against Palace with a, a penalty, a tap in the rebound to, to win the title in the previous year. And they did, did it for Leicester the following year. Costa turns out the final. Hazard! He has done it! And he's been the difference for me in the second half. Aiden Hazard looking much more like himself. And that might just be enough to get Leicester over the finishing line. Well, fun to look back on the Battle of the Bridge. Schadenfreude can be enjoyable. Um, That's just about it for this week. But before I release Simon and Don back to the hell that is homeschooling and let Liam back to the rooftop for his keepy-uppy practice, let's find out what's on the agenda this week. Liam, what are you writing about? Oh, well, I'm going to send you a video of my kick-ups this week. I've decided... (laughs) Easy to doctor, but yeah, fine. (laughs) Um, This week, I am doing a big piece on the making of Chelsea women. I feel like it's a story that that maybe hasn't been told in in the detail that it deserves. And and Chelsea women have become a a fantastic story and a real beacon within the whole of women's football. Um, So I'm I'm looking forward to putting that piece together and speaking to as many people as possible. Uh, The big piece that Simon and I are working on and have been working on for some time uh, is a is a deep dive into Chelsea's loan system, and we've spoken to several Chelsea loanees um, for the piece over over the course of the last few months about their own personal experiences, and and hopefully giving people a, a kind of broader overview of of what Chelsea's loan system looks like, 
on the ground sort of day to day and um and how it works and what it seeks to achieve so simon given the um the breadth and the, the depth of that operation i'm guessing it took you both quite a long time to, to do the research for that yeah i mean mainly getting hold of the players themselves because of course uh, that's never an easy thing in this uh, in this business but um but yeah we, we've kind of toured the country a little bit um a few by phone um but uh, look Chelsea's loan system has gone through a remarkable um, story. It was it it has been seen as a source of a way of criticising the club uh, for a number of years, but it, it's just shown, of course, this season alone has has really started to turn the tide. Even though you have to say Chelsea's academy system has been working for a number of years now, you only have to see the way they've dominated youth football um, for it to really get more more respect than perhaps it's been shown and before now so um it's uh it's definitely going to be hard to keep this piece under uh, a book kind of size but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll be doing our very best to make it uh, readable within a day or two how about you dom any idea what, what you're going to be writing about this week yet well i've got a depressing read on the state of french football there to occupy me for the first half of the week and then uh, a, a piece a retrospective piece looking at Steven Gerrard's on-off, off move from Liverpool to Chelsea back in 2004 and 2005. Excellent. Looking forward to reading all of those. Uh, do join us same time again next week. Remember, you can enjoy an ad-free version of the show by listening through the Athletic app if you're a subscriber. And if not, why not enjoy a free 90-day trial by going to theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod. That's theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod. But for now, from Dom, from Liam, from Simon and from me, it's goodbye. 